Church, as we continue to worship this morning, happy 4th of July weekend. We know that there are many that are traveling and many that are joining us uh, worship through live stream this morning. So welcome to worship. We're going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Tomorrow we'll celebrate the 246th birthday of our country. So we really don't need to hesitate to thank God for his blessings and Primarily the, the freedom that we so richly enjoy as we're able to gather together without any fear of governmental interference. What a joy it is for us to be able to lift our voices and praise to him, to open up God's word, to listen to him, knowing that throughout 2,000 years of church history, this, this has been an anomaly. And, and in many parts of our, our world, there, there are Christians who would long for the type of freedom that at times we can take for granted. And so as we gather this morning, we gather as a people that are open to uh, his leadership. And we want as uh, citizens of this earthly country to be able to pray for God's direction and God's uh, leadership in our life. Revelation chapter 2 is where we are this morning, starting in verse 18. For those of you that are new to our church, we're in a series throughout the summer entitled Dear Church And we're listening to the risen and glorious Savior, Jesus, who is given seven addresses through his servant, John, who is exiled on the island of Patmos. There are to seven churches, and those seven churches were in Asia Minor, then uh, modern-day Western Turkey now. And so these churches, we get to overhear Jesus' word to these seven churches. And as we, his church, get to hear how this word is not a word that is just historical, but it is a word that is rich with relevance for your life and my life for our church corporately. The word of the Lord in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, hear his word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know. And I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron as, with, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you've been walking through Revelation chapter 2, this is the fourth address that we have and you would note that this is the longest of all seven of the addresses. 
And this comes to us as maybe a little bit of a surprise because Thyatira was not the most significant of the cities. It was probably the least significant of the seven that are addressed here. If you were the postal carrier receiving these letters that John has written as he's had this vision from Jesus, you, you would start in Ephesus and you'd go directly north to Smyrna. You would go north from Smyrna right to Pergamum. And then you would have to go 40 miles southeast. I mean, you'd have to go uh, uh, into a way and off the, the beaten path to Thyatira. It's the most, quote-unquote, insignificant of the cities. You're getting away from the coastal metropolises of the, of the day, and you're into what really would have been at that time a, a more blue-collar, out-of-the-way place that we know to be Thyatira. It, it just for the sake of analogy here, if in uh, the 21st century, if Jesus says, I'm going to give seven letters to seven churches in the state of Alabama, I mean, you could imagine some of these places maybe that would have some, some reference to Ephesus and to Smyrna. I mean, maybe you could say that maybe the first church would, would be a church in Mobile, and then you would have another church in Montgomery, and then you would have another church maybe in the Birmingham area, and then you would be thinking, if you were predicting the direction as you continue to go north, maybe you would say, well, uh, uh, of course we would get to Huntsville eventually. And so Thyatira is getting to Coleman and going about 30 miles to the east to Arab. That, that, you've gotten to Thyatira. Not Thyatira and Arab are not the same place. Arab is a wonderful place here. And so don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But you got to be going to Arab. You don't, you don't go through there on the way to Huntsville. Don't misunderstand what I am saying here. But you got to go there. It, it, was, it was off the beaten path. It wasn't on the way to where we would think he's going to address the next church here. It was known for a couple of things. It was noted for uh, being a blue-collar town. It was noted for its metalworking, textile, industry. In this town, you would have these temple guilds that were arranged by the type of work that people do. And in that, there would be temple prostitution. In that, there would be worship of the pagan gods, but it would be tied to their work. If you're following through Paul's missionary journeys in Acts chapter 16, there's going to be a reference to Thyatira. Do you remember where that was? In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they show up in Philippi. And they're preaching the gospel. And one of the first converts there in Philippi was Lydia, who was a purple seller. And you know where she was from? She was from Thyatira. And we don't know this for sure, but we can maybe imagine that she becomes a Christian and she makes her way back to her hometown there in Thyatira. And she, she along with others, start uh, First Church of Thyatira. And we don't know that. But what we do know is that Jesus sees the good, the bad, and the ugly of this church. He, he knows it all. I love the description right here. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He's able to pierce to all that is going on into this church. And you know something? There is much to commend that is faithful and good about the work that is going on. There, there's a whole verse right there in verse 19 that says, I know your works, Jesus says, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. So, so this is a church that's active. This is a church that's loving. If you contrast the church at Ephesus, the first church, most significant church, you remember that church? It, it was a church that lost its first love. This church is a church that its latter works have exceeded the first. So we see our, our vision to be found faithful as, as God's people here at Dawson. Well, the church at Thyatira, they desire to be found faithful as God's people. So it was a church that served. 
Is it a church that exuded the fruit of the spirit of patience? This is a church where God is working. It's in an out-of-the-way place, but it's a good reminder that in, in Jesus' economy of success, they are no small churches. There are no insignificant places. They're all big in our Savior's eyes. We have sort of the world's adoption, even within the church life, of, of what is significant and what is important. And oftentimes our metrics are based upon bigger and better. And the bigger something is, more significant it is, and more that God loves it. But we just need to be reminded that God is addressing Thyatira. And it is not by accident that he goes to a place that probably people in that first century world would have been surprised to see in this litany of places here. And so on the economy of God's scope, every church matters. And I hope you know this, that the majority of churches throughout the majority of Christian history have been less than 75 in attendance. So the majority of those who have been saved, the majority of the missionaries that have been called, the majority of pastors who have preached and pastors who have been called to the ministry and souls that have been saved, you know where that's happened? It's happened in out of the way, off the beaten path. It's happened in the Thyatiras of that world and this world. So don't confuse size with health. I mean, you can be big and unhealthy and you can be small and unhealthy. You can be big and healthy and you can be small and healthy. So the church at Thyatira has much to commend. They know their works. I love love this phrase here that Jesus says, that your latter works exceed the first. It is one of the most beautiful compliments that Jesus could give to these Christians at this church because it reminds me of a parent who's got a doorpost, a doorframe, and it's got his children or her children, and at two, they mark the height and write the date, and at five, they mark the height and they write the date, and they can see the progression of their kids grow and, and maybe their kids have kids and the grandkids come to see uh, grand and granddaddy and, and what do they do? The grandkids get their own marks at two and their own marks at four and it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I, I saw you when you were a toddler and I was proud of you. And I saw you through those awkward middle school days of your spiritual journey and I'm proud of you and look how much you've grown. You're not receding. You're not going backwards. You're growing But there's much to commend in this church. But verse 20 is a reminder that all is not well in first church Thyatira. But Jesus tells us there are those in your midst who tolerate this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing the servants of God to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. There's much to commend in this church, but all is not healthy in this church. All are not faithfully serving him. So there's a false teaching that has emerged in the midst of this. I don't think there's an actual woman named Jezebel who was walking around in Thyatira teaching false teaching. There's an actual woman, but I think Jesus is using the word and phrase Jezebel 
as a symbolic reference, it's a symbolic framework to be able to see what's going on in this past. It's sort of like this July 4th weekend, it's sort of like when we talk about Benedict Arnold. We, we would say that he, he, he was a traitor and he, he uh, in that moment in the Revolutionary War where he defected to the British and we would, just as a shorthand, we would say, you know, he, he went the way of Judas. And you don't have to be a New Testament scholar. That, that, that phrase, it, it stands for someone who betrays a cause, betrays someone. And so Jezebel is being utilized as this, as this phrase for us to be able to understand with greater clarity what was going on. There was an actual Jezebel that in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19 marries Ahab. She was a foreign queen. She marries Ahab. Ahab is the seventh king of Israel. And if you remember the story of, of Jezebel, she corrupts the heart of the king. And, and she seduces the heart of the king to worship the false gods of Baal. But more than that, it's just not the king that she has her eyes upon, but she fiercely persecutes the prophets of God. She fiercely opposes the way of God and the people of God, and she introduces to the entire nation Baal worship. And if you remember the story in 1 Kings, it isn't that the Israelites leave the worship of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It isn't that they leave behind the worship of the God who brought their people out of Egyptian captivity. What they want is, is they want that worship of the one true God as their main course. But they want a side dish of Baal worship. They want it both ways. They don't want to give up the worship of the one true God revealed to Abram and revealed to Moses and revealed to, to, to those who had come behind them and had passed the baton of faithfulness down to them. No, they, they, they say the more the merrier. We can worship God and, and it's that conjunction and, that Jesus sees and begins to cut out. He's a jealous God. We think of jealousy only in a negative way. But when God in the Old Testament sees his people, sees their hearts go after the false gods that are around them. He sends a prophet in 1 Kings chapter 18, and his name is Elijah. And do you remember the message that Elijah shared? It is a message that divided loyalty always is disloyalty. D divided loyalty, it is always disloyalty. And so what Jezebel represents is spiritual adultery. What Jezebel represents is, is, is Christians who, who are wanting to worship the one true God, but they're also wanting to give their hearts and their affections to the things that are around them, the idols that are calling for them. And this, Jesus says in verse 24, is the deep things of Satan. Now, what, what does Jesus mean by that? I, I doubt that false teacher living in Thyatira is marketing her teaching as the deep things of Satan. Actually, you can imagine that she's probably saying the opposite. She's probably saying, come and hear the deep things of God. And what she's introducing is, is you can worship Jesus on the Lord's day. And guess what? You can worship the emperor during all the rest of the days. You, you, you can worship Jesus 
And, again, notice that conjunction, and you can practice the pagan practices and worship of the trade guilds of that day and, and the temple worship of that day. Hey, we, we can be open-minded, we can be a loving, we can be accepting. And what Jesus is saying is, is no, 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 I, I will have none of it here. There's a lack of discernment that the Christians in Thyatira have that is polluting the purity of the, of the teaching of the church. And, and God is a jealous God for our affections. His jealousy, it, it results and it stems from his holiness and his purity. And he knows what is best for us. And when our affections go to those things that are around us and those things that are not of God, he, he always pursues us and he always draws us back to him. I think it's an unhealthy relationship. When a spouse night after night after night comes in at two in the morning and three in the morning and four in the morning, and it's not healthy if the other spouse doesn't notice that. But you know what's worse? Is when the other spouse notices and doesn't care. Jesus notices the spiritual adultery. And you better believe he cares. You, you better believe he cares then and that he cares now. And Jesus holds out his hands saying that you have the opportunity to renounce your heart's affections for the gods, lowercase g, that are all around you, vying for your attention and vying for your affection, and you can turn back to me and worship me or else. And there are some or else's. We see judgment that will come upon this false teacher because she's refused to repent of her teaching. And Jesus has held out his hand, has given her the opportunity, but she refuses. She has hardened her heart. And it isn't that Jesus says, well, go do your thing, uh, you know, to each their own. No. We don't know for sure how much of this is symbolic and how much of this is literal, but what we do know is that the judgment of God comes upon all of us who refuse to trust him and refuse to turn to him. And that was true then, and it is, it is true now. A divided loyalty is always disloyalty. Last week, the University of Mississippi Ole Miss became the national baseball champions. Many of you know that I was born in Starkville, Mississippi, the home of baseball. No, it's not the home of baseball, but it is, uh, it is a, it's a town that has had a good baseball program, Mississippi State program, for many, many years. Mississippi State won the national championship the previous year. So it's been a good two years for college baseball in the state to our West. And many people have come up to me because they've known uh, that, that I have deep roots in Starfield with, with family members that are graduates and a past that rooted me there. And so they've asked, you know, how did you feel when Ole Miss won? Were, were you rooting for them? And of course I was rooting for them. Of course I was watching those games. Of course I wanted them to win. Somebody asked me, well, did you go? Did you go to Omaha to watch them? And I thought, well, hold on now. <laughs> I mean, any, any true fan's got to have some boundaries, right? No, I, I didn't go to Omaha. I mean, could you, ima could you imagine? And let's just do this. Let's just do this act here, a little act of imagination. Could you imagine this last week, Ole Miss wins the national championship, 
There's a big parade. It happened maybe Tuesday or Thursday or Wednesday. It's going to go through the grove. It's going to go through the square there in Oxford. Thousands of Ole Miss fans show up and they line the streets to be able to see the team come. Could you imagine if I got in my truck, got on I-22 and drove all the way to Oxford and got out of my truck with a Mississippi State shirt on, walked in the midst of the fans. But, but, but one more step. Could you imagine if I uh, walked with a Mississippi State shirt on, but I had an Ole Miss cap on? It wouldn't take long in Ole Miss country for someone to look at me and say, hey, hey, what, what's the deal here? You got a Mississippi State shirt on, but you got an Ole Miss hat. You, you seem as if your loyalties are divided, but what if I protested and said, hey, well, listen, I, I've got roots in Starfield, but I got family that live in Oxford. So when Ole Miss is playing, I'm rooting for Ole Miss. And when Mississippi State's playing, I'm rooting for Mississippi State. I, I, am, I am a fan of both. And he would look at me, or she would look at me, and it would be a quizzical look on their eyes. And they would say, well, what happens when they play one another? Who are you rooting for then? Divided loyalties is always disloyalty. You can't have it both ways, can you? You, you don't truly, and I think somebody would approach it, you can't, you can't truly love a team or love a school if another team or another school has got your heart also. You're really not a fan of either, are you? And as Christians, the Bible tells us that we're robed in Christ. The Bible tells us that we put on Christ, that through his grace and his redemption, that he has clothed us with a shirt that is our identity. We are saved by him. We are being sanctified by him. Our loyalty, our commitment, we wear it. We wear with gratitude. It is the shirt of our identity that we are in him. But there's not a single one of us that don't know what it is to put on a hat of the world. I wonder this morning, how many hats do we all own and wear that contradict and betray our identity, the shirt of who we are? One of the greatest influences on my life around this very thought is a retired pastor, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. His name is Tim Keller. He wrote a book years ago called Counterfeit Gods. It's like through the Spirit of God, it's a spiritual surgeon that is recognizing just how easy it is for us to put on the hats of, of, the, of the idols around us. See, oftentimes we, we talk about idolatry and we talk about it in the past tense. We talk about it as, as, as a history lesson. That look at, these, look at these people that worshiped all these false gods in these temples and look at how they gave their hearts. I can't imagine people doing that. Well, yes, you can. Every one of us knows what it is to give our hearts, to give our affection to people and things that do not deserve our first attention and affection. Keller, in his book, 
does a wonderful job of being able to, to identify some of these idols that we're all prone to bow down to. And he does it with a, a real helpful sort of metric where he says that how we answer the question that life only has meaning or it only has worth if and how we fill in that blank oftentimes shows us the hats that we wear. It oftentimes shows us the, the idols of our heart. Let me just give you a few, and I think maybe if you look into the mirror of these words that you might recognize some of these that vie for your affection and your attention. Life only has meaning if I have power and influence over others, the idolatry of power. Life only has meaning if I'm loved and respected by filling the blank, approval, idolatry. Or life only has meaning for me if I have this kind of pleasurable experience, a particular quality of life, comfort, idolatry. Life only has meaning for me if I'm able to get mastery over my life in this area, fill in the blank, control, idolatry. Life only has meaning for me. I only have worth if people are dependent upon me and they need me. Helping idolatry. Life only has meaning for me if there's somewhere to, someone there to protect me and to keep me safe, dependence idolatry. Or life only has meaning if I'm completely free from my obligations or responsibilities to take care of anyone, independence idolatry. Life only has meaning to me. I only have worth if I am highly productive and getting a lot done work idolatry. Life only has meaning if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments, I'm excelling in my work, achievement, idolatry, or life only has meaning if I have a certain level of wealth, certain level of financial freedom. I have these particular possessions, materialism, idolatry. It's subtle. A life only has meaning for me if I'm adhering to my religious moral codes and accomplish in its activities, religiosity, idolatry, religion, idolatry. Or life only has meaning if my race and my culture is ascendant and recognized as superior racial and cultural idolatry. Or, or life only has meaning, I only have worth if, if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group, it lets me in, the inner ring idolatry. Or life only has meaning if my children and my parents are happy and they're happy with me, family idolatry. Life only has meaning if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me, relational idolatry. Life only has meaning if I'm hurting. Life only has significance if I'm in a problem. Only then do I feel worthy of love and able to deal with the guilt that resides in me, suffering idolatry. Life only has meaning if my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence or power, ideology, idolatry. Or life only has meaning if I have a particular kind of look or body image, image, idolatry. And that's 18, but boy, could we not all add some hats to this list? Can we not all add some, some things and people that are around us that vie for our first priorities, our first allegiance, and therein you find where, where, where and what you give your heart to, there you find who and what you are worshiping. And do not think that this was only a problem in Thyatira. This is a problem in any Christian's life. This is a problem in any church's life. Why? Because we're all prone to wander. 
We're all prone to leave the God that we love. And Satan is crafty. This is the ways of Satan. He's subtle. He comes not with a pitchfork. He comes dressed not with pointed ears and in, in a red costume with a cape behind him. But he comes in subtle ways to be able to whisper in our hearts. You can have it both ways. You can worship God, serve him by having the side dish of, and you fill in the blank. What has your heart this morning? Who has your affection this morning? It very well may be that Jesus, just as he did to this false teacher who rejects him, to the Christians who fall into to the, to the influence of her teaching. It's just as if Jesus is, is reaching out and he's saying, I love you enough that with my, my piercing, flaming eyes, I will see who has your heart. I'll see what has your heart. And I'm calling you to leave it behind and to come to me. And there's a word for that. And that word is repentance. It means turning around. And this is the good news of the gospel that every one of us who have a a proneness to idolatry, he extends his hand to and he will will accept you. I I love it. I heard a a preacher say just the other day that no one is too lost for God to to find. There's no one who is too, too dirty for God to cleanse. There's no one who's too broken for God to fix. There is no one too hurt for God to heal. There is no one too far gone for God to reach. There is no one too guilty for God to forgive. There is no one too sinful for God to save. You know who that includes? Me. You know who that includes? You. Because all of us are prone to wander. All of us are prone to leave the God we love. So maybe this morning, He's extending his hand to you, saying, turn and come home. Let us pray.